what is up everybody welcome back to another episode of the rewired soul podcast it's your host chris and today my guest is none other than nicholas Christakis. All right. So before I introduce him and this conversation, just a couple quick updates for those of you who might have missed the last episode or two. Make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. The podcast schedule will be changing slightly, maybe, maybe not. I start uh, a new job uh, next week. I'm super excited. I've been self employed for a while since getting laid off in September. And I was like, you know what? I'll apply for a job just because I miss talking with people on a regular basis and not just being alone in my work so yeah so i got a really cool gig so that'll be started but yeah anyways still trying to figure out what the schedule will be like but i have a bunch of episodes banked up so there will be at least one or two episodes a week but make sure you're following me on instagram and twitter so you don't miss anything and i guess another quick announcement some of you are listening to this episode with Nicholas Christakis a day early. And that is because you have become a paid Substack subscriber. But for any of you who would like to get episodes a little bit early, head over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com. It's linked down in the description below for $5 a month or 50 bucks for the year. You get all of the regular episodes a day early. So a little bit helps come back, support the podcast and what I'm doing and all that. And you get early episodes and I'm working on some other perks and benefits for all you wonderful people supporting the podcast. All right. But anyways, anyways, let's talk about Nicholas Christakis. This is the guy. All right. So Nicholas Christakis, I've been, uh, I was introduced to his work a long time ago. Uh, his first awesome book, uh, blueprint, which is all about, uh, just, he researches, um, just, connections and how things uh spread and influence people within our networks like i'm not doing it justice uh <laughs> explaining his research but it's a really really interesting book well anyways i found out that nicholas christakis was releasing uh, a new book like soon after the pandemic started which was called apollo's arrow so nicholas which we talk about in this uh discussion nicholas and his team they they were kind of getting the rumblings that this was going to be a global pandemic really early on from their sources in china so they were working you know with governments and everything like that on how could they track this because you know his research is in social networks and all these other things so anyways uh nicholas and i we discussed you know, COVID, what, what we could have done better, what we, you know, weren't doing. But most importantly, we talk about, you know, vaccines and vaccine hesitancy and, you know, science denial and all the topics that we've been, you know, really focusing on for a while now, because it's so important that we help end this thing. So Nicholas gives us his thoughts. He explains the vaccines a little bit, you know, better for the lay person. I love how he breaks this thing down. But also, Nicholas uh, has joined the advisory board for FIRE, okay? So they're a free speech organization. I actually have Greg Lukianoff uh, coming on pretty soon. He's a president of FIRE. But yeah, uh, Nicholas Christakis is a big proponent of free speech. Uh, he works at Yale and he had his own situation. So we talk about that. But one of the more interesting parts of this conversation is we discuss that balance between free speech and misinformation, uh, you know, with all the stuff going on with COVID and the vaccines. So anyways, I'm super glad Nicholas is such a busy guy. So I really appreciate him coming on. Make sure you head down to the description, follow Nicholas over on Twitter. Um, make sure that you grab both of his books. Those will be linked down below. All right. But yeah, don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter as well. So you don't miss any changes to the podcast schedule and all that. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Nicholas Christakis about his book, Apollo's Era. Hello, Nicholas. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me. Yeah, super glad that you were able to uh, come on. I've wanted you as a guest for a while now. I uh, I love, uh, yeah, I love your books. Uh, most recently, you wrote Apollo's Arrow. So, yeah, Apollo's Arrow, you, you knocked that out pretty quick. <laughs> so can you give us a background, like, with Apollo's Arrow, like, did you start writing this book as soon as the pandemic started when you realized what was going on and how big of a situation this was going to be or how did that go almost that's almost exactly what happened so the 
the pandemic, I began paying attention to what was happening in China in, in January of 2020. Uh, I think I might have seen news reports a little bit earlier, but I have some Chinese colleagues with Ooh. whom I've been doing research for a long time in Hong Kong, based in Hong Kong, uh, doing research on social network interactions, because my lab does a lot of work on human social interactions. And, mm -hmm. uh, and we were using phone data in China, and these colleagues said, look, we could use our data to study this new virus. And so we had information about the transit of 11 million people through Wuhan uh, during January of 2020, during the harvest, during the Lunar New Year uh, festival. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we, um, we quickly got to work on that project and beginning in the middle of January, approximately the 15th or so, we started working on it. And therefore I was really paying attention to what was happening in China. And on the 24th of, of January, 2020, the Chinese government promulgated regulations that required 930 million people to stay at home. Yeah. They locked down the whole country. A billion people were, you know, on the planet were locked down at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, that really got my attention, you know, that the Chinese saw in the virus a threat of sufficient magnitude that they basically decided to detonate a social nuclear weapon to stop it. Yeah. And so then I was really paying attention. And then meanwhile, I was looking at the state of discourse in our country and it was pathetic back in January of 2020. Yeah. You know, from the White House on down, people minimizing the risk in the public discourse, people seemingly unaware that a billion people on the other side of the planet were kind of stuck at home. You know, well, what did we think, you know, that it, the virus would stay there, you know? Yeah. And then Italy collapsed in February, as people may remember, of 2020. In Lombardy, their hospitals collapsed. I mean, it was mm -hmm. a total disaster. So here's a, a rich Western democracy brought low. And, uh, and still Americans were blithely unconcerned. And our leaders and our, you know, newscasters, it, it was just a kind of thinness to the public discourse. And meanwhile, all the epidemiologists I was communicating with at the time, like me, were all alarmed. So what I did is I decided to, beginning in late February to start sending out some Twitter threads with like basic information, you know, like basic epidemic, you know, epi 101 type stuff. Mm -hmm. and to my amazement, many of those threads went viral. And, and by early March or mid-March of 2020. And so that gave me the idea that there was actually a hunger for knowledge about this. And I thought I could make myself useful in the sense that my fellow citizens needed to know what was going to happen. I mean, we were about yeah. to be afflicted by a plague. So I started writing the book in the middle of March of 2020, and I, I delivered it to the, um, the uh, editor uh, in the middle of July. So March, April, May, June, July. So 120 days. Oh, I worked wow. 12 hours a day for 120 days, and I got the book to the editor in the middle of July. They had to edit it and print it, and, and then... Um, and at the time, it was 120,000 deaths in the United States. And I thought that maybe we'd have between half a million and a million, mm. which we did. And then the book was available for sale October of 2020. So that's, that's the origin story for the book. You know, it was just like, oh, and one more thing. Like everyone else, I was locked down in March. I had nothing else to do. Yeah, you know? right. So like, you know, what was I going to do? I figured, okay, I'll just write this book, you know? Yeah, yeah. I had a lot of authors who were like, hey, time to finish or <laughs> write a book. But, yeah. um. So, so yeah, the, the book came out in 2020, like that first initial year. So I, I'm curious, you know, now, you know, at, since then, obviously the vaccine has been released. We've had a whole different slew of issues with that. Uh, have, so I'm curious, like, have you thought about doing a, an updated edition with what's happened since then? Um, and, and have you seen, uh, you know, kind of how we've reacted to the newest information improved since you wrote the book back uh, in summer 2020. Yeah, so the uh, so the uh, the paperback came out October of 2021, a year later. Mm. Which, uh, just a, we're talking here in February of 2022, so three months ago, the paperback version came out, and I that paperback has a new preface and a new afterword, ah. uh, which updates the situation and has some other small changes in the manuscript. Um, but most of the stuff. I'll, and I'll come back to the vaccine in a moment. Most of the stuff that has happened has been, again, Epi 101. Some people say to me, well, now that we're two years into the pandemic, do you care to revise anything you you said? And my answer is is no. And mm. people, and it's not because I was so smart or something. It's just that 
it's like that's what happens when you have Christopher Pittman. I mean, this is yeah. stuff you learn in school. You know, it's not like, you know, it's like the, this is a re- this is a, you know, we get respiratory pandemics every ten or twenty years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last one we had was in in um, two thousand and nine, the H one N one influenza pandemic, which was pretty mild for almost everyone. That's why yeah. we don't remember it. We get serious ones every fifty to hundred years. Serious respiratory pandemics. They follow a kind of playbook, and this one is following the same playbook. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the stuff let alone the fact that we have thousands of years of experience with plagues more generally, right? I mean, one of the themes in the book is that this way we have come to live right now feels so alien and unnatural. Mm. And it is. But you need to understand, plagues are not new to our species. Yeah, They're just new to us. You know, we think this is crazy, but our ancestors have been dealing with plagues for thousands of years. You know, plagues are in the Bible. Mm-hmm. The, the Homer's Iliad, one of the oldest work of Western fiction, begins with a plague. Uh, they're in Shakespeare, they're in Cervantes. So our ancestors tried to warn us by reducing this very human experience into our religious and literary traditions and try to say, look, there's this thing called plague. It happens from time to time. It sucks. Here's, you know, here's what you need to know. No. So with this long history of plagues, we have a, a good modern history of respiratory pandemics. It was possible to know a lot about how we were going to respond. And all of that, of course, is, is in the book, plus a lot of virology and epidemiology and other kind of stuff. And I hope I tell the story in a, in a vivid way, but, but the one thing that was a little different is the vaccines. So in the book, I thought that the book was published in October, 2020. I thought that the vaccines might take a couple of years at the time. There were 120 phase three trials that were underway around the world. I thought the vaccines might take a couple of years to appear. Uh, but that even if they appeared in the first quarter of 2021, they wouldn't alter the, the epidemic trajectory very much. Uh, they would save some lives, but like the initial phases, you know, the virus would have been sweeping through the human population, mm-hmm. mostly even before the vaccines came out. And the vaccines actually came out a little earlier than the first quarter of 2021. By December of 2020, people were already getting vaccinated, yeah. healthcare workers. So two or three months earlier, they came out, which is unbelievable. And, you know, the vaccines are, you know, are a miraculous technology that, you know, humans have been working on for 200 years. They're a singular accomplishment of our species that we're able to conquer pathogens in this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that part, those were, that was not exactly, you know, that happened a bit, that definitely happened faster than I thought, but not much faster. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so that's, but, but, and, and I'm sorry, one more thing about the vaccines. The vaccines are a special feature of our time in the crucible. So our ancestors had to confront this ancient threat of plague. They thought wrongly that they had effective treatments, you know, like during the 14th century, there was this recipe prescription where you could take a snake and mince, mince the snake and mince an onion and make a paste. Yeah snake and onion and rub your body with his paste and it would ward off the pathogens, the you know, black death, but of course it did work. So they thought they had treatments. They didn't. We, we have an effective treatment. You know, we yeah. have a vaccine, several vaccines that work. Plus now we have some drugs that are helpful. So, so our time in the crucible is different than our ancestors dying because we actually can do something to stop it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I was, I was super fortunate. I was in, uh, probably, you know, uh, one of the first groups of people to get vaccinated, like in early, early 2021, uh, just fortunately because, uh, you know, I do some volunteer work in the, uh, mental health realm uh-huh. and my girlfriend, she's, uh, doing her master's in social work. So she worked with people and yeah, just to, you know, I, that's all I was waiting for to help calm my anxiety. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go get this, but I will say this, like uh, your conversation recently with Sam Harris helped me understand how we were able to get this process going so quickly and, you know, understanding a little bit more about mRNAs. Like for a guy who has no, like very little medical knowledge, it helped explain that very, very well. So anybody listening, I, I hope they check that out. But although um, I, mean, I, 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 uh, I misspoke at one moment in my talk, conversation with Sam, which I said something which I know is not true, but I said it accidentally, which is. With the adenovirus vaccines, I, I said they, they express the uh, spike protein on their surface, which of course is not at all what that is going on there. What, uh, and I know this, 
but what they do is, is they cause human cells to ex express a spike protein on the surface. Oh. So, uh, so I sort of slipped up and said something silly there. And of course I was immediately called to task on this, but needless <laughs> to say, needless to say, I understand that virology, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it happens to the best of us, but um, with, you know, one of the things I find interesting with all your, uh, your, your work in like, just uh, how we're connected, like, in, you know, just socially and your first book connected and everything. So I, I'm curious, you know, with whether it's, you know, vaccines or just the way, you know, uh, like you mentioned, like the Italy lockdowns and then what started happening in America, all of the people against these sort of like mandates and restrictions and all of that. And I'm curious, like, uh, even now, because even now we're finding get some people vaccinated. Do you see any aspects like, you know, even psychologically, what helps influence people uh, for better or for worse? So like for someone like, you know, me, who is, you know, I want people to get vaccinated. I got my son vaccinated as soon as they released it for people 12 years uh, and older. And like, you know, I read a lot of books like Cialdini's book on influence and all these other like marketing books on the psychology of that. And, you know, I'll post it on social media. Hey, got vaccinated. Hopefully that influences somebody I know. But uh, yeah, from, from that aspect of whether for good or bad, what have you seen of how these kind of ideas spread? Well, I mean, I think the, one of the problems is the group that is vaccine hesitant is a very heterogeneous group. And so it's not a one size fits all strategy. Mm. Some of those people make arguments that um, are, are, are sound and, uh, and they need a, a sound response. They'll say, look, I'm a little worried the speed with which the, the vaccine was developed, or I'm a little worried about the novelty of the technology. And to those people, it doesn't help to say, never mind your little head, you know, just do what I'm telling you. Yeah. I mean, that's not an appropriate response. You know, we need to say, yes, you're right. It was developed fast. Yes, you're right. This is a new technology. On the other hand, there's old technology, the inactivated vaccines from China, for example, Sinovac and Sinopharm vaccines. You could take those. Are you willing to take those, right? Those are, you know, inactivated vaccine technology goes back, you know, well, at least a hundred years. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, and see what they say, you know, so, oh, yes, I would take the Chinese vaccine. Okay, great. Let's get you a Chinese vaccine. Uh, or they, uh, you know, they say, well, you know, I'm worried about the speed, you know, uh, or some, another sort of concern might be, well, we don't know what the long-term implications of the vaccine are mm. and, uh, which is true. And there's, but there's no real way to know that unless we wait 10 years. And then we, on the flip side of that, we also don't know what the long-term implications of COVID are. So if you're going to run your chances, it's yeah. much safer, I think, to get a part of the virus, the spike protein, than to get you know, the, the RNA that codes for the spike protein, I need to be more specific now since I was called out the last time. <laughs> yeah. the, R, the, the mRNA vaccines have mRNA in them, which codes for the spike protein. It's much better to get that than to get the whole virus that has the whole everything about it in the baggage. If you're worried about long-term implications. Anyway, so there are people like that who I think need to be met on the merits. There are other people who have wild conspiracy theories of a couple of types. There's some for example, who believe that, you know, there's a nanoparticles in the vaccine that are mm -hmm. tracking us, you know, which is ridiculous. And it's hard to reach such people. There are some people who, who object to the vaccine, uh, out of some misguided principle, like they're like, you know, like it's my body and I'll do what I want. Of course, that's true. You, you can kill yourself if you wish there's, you know, we suicide is allowed, you know, mm -hmm. and, yeah. as it should be. I mean, anyone has self-determination. But that's kind of a really, those people need, you need to talk to them. Why are you falling on this hill? Like, why are you dying on this particular hill? Mm -hmm. um, you know, why can't you express your political identity or your ideology, for example, in some other way? You know, other, peop other people who feel as you do in other countries have not politicized the vaccine to this extent. In other words, if you feel that you want to resist government intrusion in your life, well, why don't you, for example, only use cash for your transactions, which isn't going to harm you, mm -hmm. but still take a vaccine. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like, so, so each, so the vaccine hesitant people have a broad range of concerns. And so it's very difficult to have a one size fits all, uh, kind of, um, uh, response to them. You know, and then there are some people, for example, in minority groups who might be, you know, suspicious. They may be like, well, I don't want the vaccine because, you know, the government's experimenting on us, mm -hmm. you know? So. You know, there are just lots of different groups of people with lots of different agendas who are resisting the vaccine. But one of the things I find entertaining about this, that's not exactly the right word, amusing, I suppose, 
is that a lot of these people are using, you know, this technology. I was just thinking that. Yeah. You know, which was also developed by scientists and engineers for working for a hundred yeah. years. You know, like, why are you so confident in this technology? But you pick this vaccine technology as something, you know, that is to be, you know, is, is to be, uh, you know, is, is big corp, you know, big corporations and the government are somehow conspiring to track us and to control yeah. us and, you know, and lie to us and all of this stuff, but you're using a device that, that you know, and the scientists are lying to us. And what do they know? Well, the scientists were able to invent this device that works, you know? Yeah. And, uh, anyway, so, so it, it's hard, you know, to, to know how to talk about how to effectively reach vaccine hesitant individuals. Yeah. But one it, more thing, but mm -hmm. by the way, you know, there's also an argument that you live in a, in a society and citizenship doesn't just have rights, it has responsibilities. You know, mm -hmm. if we were being invaded by a foreign adversary, we would have a draft, right? People would be conscripted. Mm -hmm. And, um, and the virus is like an invader and, you know, the, the collectivity, you know, for example, the, the president has the, uh, the defense production act, right? During a time of national crisis, the president can go into factories and say, you're going to make what we want now. It yeah. doesn't matter what you want to make. Uh, and, and we have these provisions in our country about private property, about, about your personal liberty, right? You can be conscripted, mm -hmm. you know? So we can debate about whether COVID-19 is a threat of sufficient magnitude that would warrant such actions by the state. But the fact that the state has some power is not, is a fact, you know, we, yeah. we, we live in a society, which, which we, you know, which we partake of and as to which we've delegated such authority. Yeah. And, and kind of like what you were saying, like, I, 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 I'll read just about any book that comes out, just trying to understand the psychology of, uh, you know, science deniers, conspiracy theorists and everything like that. And kind of like what you're saying, you know, there's different, it's, uh, you know, it's not a one size fits all for people who are hesitant or even fully anti-vax. Like there are a lot of hesitant people. Like I have somebody in my life who was on the fence a lot, right. And forcibly tilted towards getting the vaccine, but anyways like uh something i've kind of realized since it's so individualized and like you mentioned like minorities might have some reason there are other peoples who just you know have far out there republicans evangelical christians yeah. off the grid people i mean there's so many different demographics each for different reasons that might have some hesitancy so it's not a it's not a homogeneous group yeah so so if it, if it were up to you if anybody listening right like what what advice could you would you give like what do you think is the most effective uh you know um like has anything worked for you have you spoken with vaccine hesitant people on twitter or emailing you and explaining you know like you mentioned like how we were able to come up with it so quickly you know what i mean or you know a second part of that question is there something that mainstream news or the government could be doing better to help uh you know convince these people because just from my opinion something that doesn't work is Hey, you're a lunatic. Get the vaccine. You know, just like talking yes. down to these people doesn't yes. seem to work. So I'm curious, what 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 would you say does work or is effective? Well, again, I think I can't give you a one size fits all answer because it depends on the nature, the origins of the objection, the kind of objection that people have. Mm. But I think that there is a principle here, which is that it's kind of like it's kind of like when you've had a really bad day and you come home. And you just want to talk to your spouse about it and you don't expect your spouse to fix your problem, but boy, does it feel better just to have your spouse hear your problem, right? You just, and then your spouse listens to you and then says, I heard what you said. Wow. That sucks. Uh, that all human beings crave and like that, right? That sense of being heard. So I think one principle that's relevant to people who are opposed to vaccination is that we have to grant them the civil courtesy, the civic and civil courtesy of hearing them. Mm. They too are a part of our democracy. Uh, my fellow citizens who don't wish to be vaccinated for whatever reason are American citizens. They deserve to be heard. They deserve to be cared for. Right. I mean, they deserve whatever the state can offer them and whatever we as fellow citizens can offer them. So, so I think the first principle I would say is just listening first. Mm -hmm. And then you can try to engage if they want, you could say, you know, Okay, you've told me all these concerns you have. 
how it, would it help you to hear my opinions on this? Mm-hmm. But you know, at the end of the day, I mean, there's only so much you can do to persuade people, um, you know, to persuade people to, um, to do what's best for them. Yeah. Um, you know, we do mandate other safety, like, like one of the things I talk about or an analogy I've used is, uh, is airbags in cars, right? We have laws that require there to be airbags in cars. Now it's like a vaccine an airbag is not perfect. Just cause you get vaccinated doesn't mean you can't get COVID mm-hmm. and just because you have an airbag doesn't mean you can't die in a collision, mm-hmm. but it helps a lot, yeah. you know, to have an airbag and we, and we mandate it. Right. I mean, that's just, you, you know, well, cars come with airbags period that you, you know, I suppose yeah. if you were really crazy, you could, you could choose to disable the airbags in your own vehicle for some reason, but it's hard to imagine what the motivation for that would be. Yeah. Well, well, I actually used to work in the car industry. And one thing I know is if you disable them, you won't pass smog. So that brings up a whole other yeah. issue. But, uh, I, I, I think what's helped me is because I'm a recovering drug addict. I got sober in 2012 and I've worked in treatment and like you're saying, you can't convince people like if they're not willing to listen, you know what I mean? And I try to help a lot of people get sober and some people aren't ready to hear yes. what you're trying to say. And that's kind of helped me listen and see where people are coming from and all of that. But, you know, one thing I want that's to ask. A great, oh, go ahead. That's a great analogy, you know, uh, and I'm familiar with that also, that the challenges of addiction recovery. And um, it is, uh, it's a really good analogy. You know, you, you, you can't. The person has to be at a point of readiness themselves. There has to be, you can't, you can't, you know, you can do 50% of the work, but you yeah. can't do 90% or uh, certainly not a hundred percent. You know, they have to meet you halfway for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately is because, you know, in, in the addiction realm, we, you know, sometimes I'm like, oh, you have to let a person hit rock bottom, but you know, with fentanyl and heroin being so oh, they big out there, like, yeah, sometimes rock bottom is dead. And we're seeing that, like, we've heard so many tragic stories of people on their deathbed saying, like, I wish I got the vaccine or can I get oh, vaccinated no. now? Well, there was that case of that, uh, of the police officer who, who refused to get vaccinated. It was in Oregon or Washington state that became a hero for his refusal, who just died oh, uh, really? you know, of COVID. Yeah, that he was lionized uh, on Fox News, for example. And uh, the poor man just died, you know, and why, why would you, well, I mean, I understand that people are willing to die for their beliefs, which is an admirable quality in many human beings. And is an admirable quality in our species that we, you know, we're willing to risk our lives for abstract ideas. That's quite an interesting, um, statement. Yeah. But why you would pick this thing to risk your life over, you know, it's sort of an odd, you know, I could see you risking your life in battle or for a cause you really care about. To risk your life so that you don't get a vaccine is is kind of odd to me, at least. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's you know. it, it's it's really it's really interesting, especially when you see the kind of uh, attention people get for just being out there and saying I'm standing up against this, and you know, and and kind of being that person, you get a lot of attention and things like that. So I wonder how much that plays into it in this world of where social media likes and engagement kind of like build up the ego, you know, so you become that guy and getting on invited on Fox News in front of millions of people, like maybe that's playing into that. You know what I mean? Yes. And then I, but then I think the people that encourage that also should be called to account, you know, so, Mm. so, uh, media outlets that, that whip people into a frenzy about vaccination when, when, when they're acting hypocritically, for example, in Fox news, you have to be vaccinated or tested every day if you work on the premises and yet they are pushing out a kind of mythology that it's heroic somehow not to be vaccinated, which they don't practice themselves. So. You know, I think, you know, I think, um, I think we're, you know, we're facing a serious, we're, we're getting, you know, we're, we're approaching the end of the first phase of the pandemic. So I think, you know, the, the, you can think of respiratory pandemics as having three phases, the immediate phase, the intermediate phase, and the post-pandemic phase. As I described in the book, we're, we're reaching now on schedule in early 2022, we're going to, we're going to put the initial phase behind us, the immediate phase. That's when the virus, we feel the epidemiological and biological shock of the virus, like a tsunami washing mm-hmm. ashore that just water is going inland. The virus is spread, 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 spreading among us. And, you know, it's killing those of us that it can, 
it's an, it's an invasive species to our bodies mm -hmm. is what the virus is. And, uh, but then eventually the waters will recede that we'll reach herd immunity. The virus will become endemic. Doesn't mean the virus is gone. The virus will still be there. It'll still be killing people, but it'll fall to like background levels, yeah. a kind of like influenza rates of mortality. So it's still nasty. It's nothing to be, but it'll be much lower than we, now we're losing today. When you and I are speaking, I think there are like 2,500 deaths a day still in our country, mostly among the unvaccinated. That's a lot of people dying every day. Mm -hmm. Typical flu level deaths is 50 to hundred deaths a day. Oh, wow. Uh, so, so we'll eventually fall back down and everyone in the country will either be, be vaccinated or have been infected. Those are your choices. You can yeah. get infected with the virus, you can get vaccinated pretty much everyone. And, um, and then that'll mark the end of the first phase of the pandemic. And then we'll enter the second phase. So that's when, you know, the, the tsunami, the water is finally received. That's great. But now in the intermediate phase, we're going to have to clean up the mess. You know, we're going to have to cope with the clinical, psychological, social, and economic aftershocks of the virus. Millions of kids have missed school. Yeah. Millions of Americans will be disabled by the virus. The virus, if a million Americans are probably for sure going to die from this condition, probably 5 million Americans will have survived the condition, but be disabled. They'll have kidney or pancreatic or, or, or psychiatric or cardiac or pulmonary fibrosis, you know, problems. They'll have all yeah. kinds of problems. 5 million Americans will have clinical sequelae. Kids have missed school. People have lost their jobs. Trillions of dollars were borrowing. All of that stuff will require our attention as a nation. That'll last, I think, until 2024. We'll have periodic outbreaks and headaches, but it'll be damping down and we'll be coping mostly with the non-biological impact of the virus, which is substantial. And then in 2024-ish, we're going to enter the sort of post-pandemic phase, which I think is going to be a little bit of a party. Sort of yeah. like the roaring twenties of the 21st century, like the roaring twenties of the 20th century. Oh, well, um, that'll be fun. Something to look forward to. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think it's a very, it's a very human response, right? Like after the, after the hurricane is gone or after the war is over, or after the mm -hmm. earthquake stops or, you know, after the famine is over, people, the survivors rejoice. Yeah. And, um, you know, after the plague is finally behind us, I think people will rejoice. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think we're going to see quite a lot of social and economic and, uh, artistic and, uh, entrepreneurial zeal, uh, mm. uh, during that time. Yeah. So, uh, uh, something that, uh, you know, I, I find super interesting and I've been dying to talk to you about is, uh, recently it was announced that you joined, uh, the fire advisory council, right? Uh, I actually have, uh, Greg Lukianoff coming on in a couple of weeks to the chat, uh, and yeah, so, you know, with your own, you know, background and you fighting for free speech on college campuses and all that, it's something that I've been pretty passionate about since I, I, I had my own situation on YouTube a couple of years ago. But anyways, uh, I would love to know some of your thoughts because uh, something that's been going on a lot recently, especially the last week or two, is the, uh, the, the conversations around censorship for misinformation regarding COVID, vaccines, pandemic, all that, right? So for you, where, where do you kind of see this, right? Like with the platform's responsibility, whether it's Spotify or social media, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or what have you, because I think that's where a lot of us get conflicted because just personally, I haven't seen the evidence that misinformation completely flips somebody. Like somebody's like, I'm gonna go get the vaccine, all of a sudden I hear something or watch something and now I'm not, right? It seems like it just entrenches more people. So I don't really see the evidence for it, but I'm curious your thoughts were that balance of free speech, misinformation and how it influences people. Well, I mean, there's so many different things in what you said, and I don't think there's a one size fits all answer. We have everything from right-wing legislatures um, trying to shut down uh, books about homosexuality in high school yeah. libraries. I mean, who signs their name to a list of prohibited books, right? Like, yeah, do you not know right. that history? Like, say, we're going to make up a list of books that we're going to not have in a high school library, which is, again, different than books used in the curriculum in high school, which is different than books used in the curriculum for five, for six-year-olds, right? There mm -hmm. are all these subtleties that are associated with that. But we have all this legislature now that legislatures that are trying to pass laws to regulate the curriculum and in taught in school, which again is also complicated because we have local control of schools and there's always been this history and debate mm -hmm. and we don't necessarily want to surrender that. On the other hand, we delegate to teachers and uh, 
uh, librarians authority. You say, okay, we're going to, we want this broad set of principles about our education, but now you go do it. Just like with the police, right? The police have broad latitude. We give them latitude on what to do. We don't micromanage the cops. Yeah. Uh, so we shouldn't micromanage the librarians either, as far as I'm concerned. So we've got that. We've got the whole Spotify thing. And to be very clear, I've been on Joe Rogan twice. I like Joe personally. I think he's a fantastic interviewer. Uh, and I absolutely don't think Joe should be removed from Spotify. That's ridiculous, right? Yeah. I mean, if you don't like something that Joe has said, go talk yourself to someone else. You know, like the answer to yeah. speech we do not like is more speech. Now, having said that, there are, you know, and then Twitter removed Donald Trump, you know, from uh, which, you know, I... Um, and to be clear, these companies are allowed to do that. It's not a First Amendment issue. These are private companies. I'm mm -hmm. not obliged. You know, if I'm printing a newspaper, you don't have a right to print what you want in my paper, right? I mean, I could say, no, I don't want to print what you submitted. You know, I get to mm -hmm. decide what's on my platform. So that's well understood too. So we have then on the, on the left, we've got all kinds of problems where people are, you know, want other books. Through. So the right has to, they don't want books about stories. So the left doesn't want, they don't want Huck Finn. They don't want... Uh, uh, to Kill a Mockingbird. They don't want uh, Lord of the Flies. You know, uh, they, 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 they're all a list of books. <laughs> they, want, yeah. they just wish people would stop trying to regulate what other people read, right? Yeah. Um, or hear or listen to. So I think, you know, I think um, it's same on college campuses. You know, we've had example after example. We had this absurd case at, at Yale Law School recently, the Trent Colbert case, which was insane where the student, you know, I think it's the evidence shows very innocently sent out an invitation uh, for a party at his, uh, at his apartment. And uh, some other students felt that they were racial overtones, racist to be precise, overtones in his uh, invitation, which evidence shows the student did not intend. Mm -hmm. uh, and other many observers did not see that in his invitation. Uh, and, um, and then the school, uh, the law school had some administrators who prepared an apology for him to sign, you know, what? And, uh, and, uh, and then threatened him with consequences if he didn't sign it. I mean, this is a totalitarian strike. This is like, you know, if, if, if the police had called in uh, 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 some, uh, you know, a poor person and threatened them with, you know, horrible things will happen if you don't sign this confession, we would rightly denounce it. Yeah. Right. This is a ridiculous, you know, I mean, the facts of the case are really concerning. So, so, so we have all these cases on college campuses of, uh, of attempts to regulate what people, uh, kind of a climate that's bad and an attempt to regulate what people can say both on and off campuses. Uh, so we've got threats from the right. We've got threats from the left. We've got them in educational institutions. We've got them in workplaces, the whole Whoopi Goldberg thing that just oh, happened. Yeah. Uh, you know, I thought what Whoopi said was ahistorical and ignorant, uh, but you know, we, she's an entertainer. She said something stupid. Okay. So we just ignore it or then yeah. we respond, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, so, so the, the fundamental issue in my opinion is that as a society, we have a remarkable, wonderful set of principles about free and open expression. They are reflected in our constitution, which of course only prevents the government from regulating speech. It doesn't prevent your employer mm -hmm. from stopping you from speaking. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, regulate private industry for obvious reasons, mm -hmm. but we have, it's such a norm in our society about the wanting to allow the widest possible expression and exploration of ideas that it is even in our constitution, which is not common around the world, even the Brits. Yeah do not have a constitutional right to free expression. Uh, and I think if as a society, we move away from that, it, it, we harm ourselves. You know, I think we can do better as a citizenry in trying to tolerate that there will be fellow citizens who stay, who say shit we don't like, Yeah, but yeah. that's okay. Just ignore them, you know, or, or say your own thing in response to whatever they say, you know, you, you don't, you know, you're our fellow citizens. And the fact that they can say whatever they want means you can say whatever you want. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and I think, I think that, 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 and, and in addition, there, there, there are a set of norms regarding how we would go about resolving our differences. You know, like you, like, uh, 
uh, like uh, 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 Robbie uh, uh, George, a prison professor, just um, I just said on uh, on uh, um, hold on a second that uh, just said on uh, he had a nice sort of turn of phrase on Twitter. He goes, "How about I state what I believe and give my reasons why and my evidence, and then you see if you agree." If you don't agree, you state what you believe and give your reasons and evidence, and then I respond to you. How about we do that? (laughs) Like, you know, yes, that's what we should do. You know, that's exactly the kind of society I would want, in any case, to to live in. Yeah, you know, uh, just, you know, one of my last questions for you, like, whenever I think about this, it just, it seems like such an irrational fear that if somebody says something, there's going to be action taken. Like if somebody uh, reads reads a book, right, that said something, like if somebody reads Hulk, Huck Finn and it says, you know, uh, some some in, in hard R in words in there, like I'm half black and I don't think anybody's going to read Huck Finn and just magically become a racist, right? But there's right. this fear. There's this fear that if the wrong information, the wrong ideas get out there, you're just going to get hundreds of thousands of people that turn into like Nazi Germany or something weird. Where do you, where do you think that fear comes from? Okay. So, well, so first of all, words are powerful. Like, let's not Mm -hmm. forget, right. You can whip people into a frenzy. You can, you can, you know, there are cult ideologies, for example, where you have this set of ideas that people will take their own lives, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, in response to words. Uh, so words are powerful. I'm not denying that, but, but in a free society, we have to draw a distinction between words and actions, right? And, um, that's one very important distinction. And I, I think it is possible to draw the difference between words and actions, you know, uh, and, 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 and we even tried to use to teach this to our kids, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Yeah. Right? We want to get the kids talking to each other and, and using words. And that's better than fighting, right? Yeah. I mean, so there's a distance. The second thing is, is there's a well-understood difference between between free speech and harassment. So famously, the Nazis could march through Skokie, Illinois, but they can't stop in front of your house. They can't stop in front of my house, right? That's a threat. That's different, right? Like burning a cross on public land is different than burning a cross in your neighbor's front yard, okay? The latter is a threat. It's a harassment. And we rightly draw a distinction between those things. So... We have to, when we talk about these issues, whether it's in school books, in libraries, and we have to say, well, what age of the kids are we talking about? When we talk about speech, we have to talk about, you know, well, what is the setting in which the speech is? Is it a public thoroughfare or is it, you know, am I, you know, threatening you, you know? And, mm-hmm. uh, and we have to be able to say, for example, my wife is an elementary school teacher. She has this wonderful way of handling it. There's some wonderful, wonderful old stories that you would hate to have to give up. You know, the the, the example she uses, and I don't remember the name of the book, it's a book about an astronaut. And Mm -hmm. like all the astronauts, my wife has a huge collection of children's books of many kinds, but the story I'm about to tell relates to a particular book. And I think it, it was an astronaut, I can't remember. And all the astronauts were were men, were boys. And when Mm -hmm. my wife reads this book, she tells the students, she talks to five and six year olds and she says, isn't it funny? They used to think that girls couldn't be astronauts. Wasn't that silly of them? Yeah. And then you get a rich conversation going. You can teach kids, right? You can teach them about the past. You can, you can get the kids to start thinking about, yeah, that is nuts, actually. That doesn't make any sense that girls can't be astronauts. What a powerful lesson. And then you yeah. don't have to necessarily abandon this book, which might have other redeeming qualities other than its horrible sexism, which is irritating as hell, you know? Yeah. So, so I think, and the same can go in college, right? Like right now there are all these law students around the country who don't want to read a uh, Ginny Sook from Harvard Law School had a case, an article in the New Yorker about how difficult it's become to teach rape law because, uh, the students don't want to read these very awful cases, awful mm. cases of, of criminal behavior. Well, how can you become a lawyer and not be willing to read disturbing texts? I mean, it doesn't make any sense, yeah. right? It's like me, I'm a doctor. I took, I, I was a hospice doctor. It, it would be like, like me saying, you know, I, I, I want to take care of seriously ill people, but you know, I don't want to see blocked. I mean, it's, yeah. it's incompatible, right? Yeah. And so, so you, I think we need to cultivate a thicker skin and cultivate some intellectual and emotional fortitude 
in five-year-olds, in 15-year-olds, and in 25-year-olds in an age-appropriate way uh, as they face these, these uh, kinds of things. I, I, had, um, I had a conversation a few years ago with a colleague of mine, and I said to him, you mark my words, soon it will become impermissible in college classrooms to show those awful pictures from our history of, of lynched black men in the South up until the turn of the last century. Horrible images. If anyone, if anyone of these listeners have seen these images, maybe you see them. They're disturbing beyond belief. You burnt bodies, right? Yeah. Our ancestors did that shit. We mm. can't hide from that. We have to face that. We have yeah. to take responsibility for that. We have to talk about it. It's undignified. You know, it's like Emmett Till's mother says, no, show the world what they mm. did to my son, right? So, so this idea that we can somehow erase the past by not speaking of it, you know, is, is subverts, subverts the, the, the cause of social justice. It, it subverts the whole point of having a civilized society, of yeah. progress, of becoming better. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, and so this, this, I just reject this notion that we, you know, that we can stop others from speaking or stop books from circulating or stop art from being displayed because it offends someone. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. not the right way. That's not the path to righteousness, in my opinion. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, no, uh, I, yeah, I know you got to get gold, but when you're talking too, I, I, I just heard a similar situation, as I mentioned, my girlfriend's in her master's program for social work, and she's told me stories about other students saying that certain certain things they're learning triggers them and they don't know yeah. if they could do that or do that assignment or whatever. And I'm like, you are going to be working with people like, worker. yeah, when yes. I worked in addiction treatment, I heard awful stories. Like a lot of yes. the addicts have childhood trauma, sexual abuse, so many things. And I couldn't imagine being like, whoa, 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 time out. You can't tell me that story. <laughs> like, so I, that kind of stuff really concerns yes. me. And I love what your wife's doing because my son, he just turned 13 and I've been teaching him, you know, I try to find everything as a learning experience. Right. Yes. And exposing him and building that resilience and strength. And, you know, that's, that's what I'm hoping, but, but yeah, Nicholas, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. I love what you're doing. And, uh, for, yeah, everybody listening, where can they find you? And because I love your work, uh, you have any upcoming books that I should know about? So, uh, all the research in my laboratory is at humannaturelab.net. Uh, and you can get all our science and papers there. I'm on Twitter at N-A Christakis, N-A-C-H-R-I-S-T-A-K-I-S. And I had this book that you mentioned, Apollo Zero, which of course is available at bookstores everywhere, including online, uh, which came out in 2020. And then before that, in 2019, I had a book I was very proud of, we didn't discuss today, called Blueprint, The Evolutionary Origins of a Good Society. Yeah. Which is about the origins of love and friendship and cooperation and teaching, why why our species has these remarkable qualities. So there's, there's stuff out there that I've done and I am grateful for having, uh, for, for having, uh, uh, spoken to you, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Hey, that gives us some excuse to do this again. when We could talk about blueprints. So, <laughs> so yeah, thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nicholas Christakis. He's such a cool guy and, and easy guy to talk to. One of the things I love about his work, like those of you who follow the podcast, like one of the things I'm always trying to do is bring on people who are way smarter than me uh, and break down like really complicated or complex topics uh, because yeah, this world is a complicated place. And I will say this, I think uh, more than most people, Nicholas Christakis does such a great job of breaking these things down for the average person to understand because science communication is huge. Oftentimes, science communication uh, not only goes over a lot of our heads, even though it's unintended, it's just, you know, when you're an academic and you're doing this research, you have certain language and lingo and all that, and you're talking with other academics. But not only does it go over our heads, but sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes it can come off really condescending. You know what I mean? But I think Nicholas uh, does such an amazing job communicating these things. Like I mentioned, um, his episode with Sam Harris. Uh, this was, um, you know, back in, I, I think, yeah, December when it came out, I listened to it. I'm like, man, he broke down this vaccine. I started to learn about the technology and how these vaccines are created. Some questions I had were answered. So uh, kudos to him. Hopefully one of these days he writes a book on just like science, uh, science communication, because he is 
really, really good at it. So, so yeah, um, make sure you head down to the description, make sure you're following Nicholas, grab uh, both uh, his books. Uh, Apollo Zero is one about, you know, COVID and uh, our response and everything like that, as well as his book blueprint. All right. But anyways, before I let you go, uh, don't forget, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul. Um, so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes and, uh, above all else, I love chatting with all of you right now at the time of releasing this, there's a lot of stuff going on with Russia and Ukraine. And because, because of you guys, like, let me give you guys some props real quick. Like because of this community we've built, um, just like trying to find like good resources, uh, having some media literacy along with scientific literacy, like this morning I was like, yo, what are some good sources to follow what's going on with Russia and Ukraine? Because there's a lot of bad information, a lot of bias information, all these other things. And a bunch of you replied. And that is why that is like the main reason I love all of you following me on Instagram and Twitter, because yeah, you guys are great to talk to and you provide me with, you know, good resources. So, so yeah, if you're not yet, follow me, you're doing, you're doing me a favor. All right. But yeah, a couple other things I've been uploading a lot of these videos over to the rewired soul YouTube channel. So make sure you subscribe over there. And if you want some easy, simple, free ways to support the podcast two quick and easy things you could do one, share this episode. If you thought this episode with Nicholas was interesting if there was some good information if you think that people can benefit from it share it over on social media email it to your friends whatever it is help get the word out the other thing head over to apple podcast leave a rating and review that helps out a lot the algorithms love when you leave ratings and reviews and they also notice when you're sharing the episodes so it kind of moves the podcast up in the algorithm so both those things don't cost you a penny just a little bit of your time and i really appreciate it but some other ways you can help support the podcast like I mentioned, uh, you can become a paid Substack subscriber. It's five bucks a month, $50 for the year. You get early episodes that help support what I'm doing as well. Uh, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com. I have self-published some books on mental health, addiction recovery, and all that. So you can get those at the rewiredsoul.com. And finally, if you're like me and somebody who realizes how important like mental health is, uh, check out that affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I've personally used. I can't vouch for them enough. It's affordable. It's online. You work with a licensed therapist. So yeah, check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. Uh, but anyways, another huge thanks to Nicholas uh, for taking the time to come on. Uh, it was difficult to schedule something because he's such a busy guy. So I really appreciate it. Follow him, grab a copy uh, or two copies <laughs> of his books. Uh, they're linked down below. And yeah, I, I might, I might have a bonus episode for you guys this weekend. I'm not sure yet, uh, but there will definitely be at least one or two episodes next week, even though I'm going to be working because I'm going to, you know, batch record and edit and schedule and all that stuff. So, but if you're following me on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul, you won't miss anything. It's beautiful. All right. But anyways, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.